Welcome to Video Storm. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1994 classic Pulp Fiction. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Well, I don't think I need to put these cards on the table, but this is absolutely one of my favorite movies of all time. So um, you can feel free to say whatever you want about it. This, but this, this to me is uh, is a really special movie. So I'm going to talk about my history with this, but I want to start with you. What's your history with this film and with Tarantino uh, more broadly? Yeah, so my history with this film, Sam, is uh, when this came out in '94, I was kind of coming out of a shell where I hadn't watched a lot of more challenging films, I guess I would say. So I have a very clear memory. I could tell you the theater that I went to see it. I could tell you the time of the show. Um, and I can tell you that when um, when that when that opening scene right before the credits was over and that and that guitar that comes in, I was I was so hooked and and I felt like I had been given a shot of adrenaline. And uh, it just I mean, yeah, it was like I, I walked out of the theater and my mouth was still probably hanging open because I hadn't seen anything like that. Um, and that hadn't been, I mean, there hadn't been anything in the theaters like that, really. I mean, it was almost sui generis. Um, so yeah, it had a, it had a big, big impact on me, no doubt. I was like, so you can write dialogue like that and have action like that and tell a story like that. It was like, yeah, it was amazing. Well, that's interesting to hear because like, I, for me, that's my exact experience. Um, but I was 17, like I had never seen anything. So, Mm -hmm. so like. Um, so I, um, I'm trying to think, yeah, so I was, I was a senior in high school and I didn't really know anything about, about the movie. And I will say part of what's special and going to be different about this episode is uh, we've watched movies together that I've seen before, but this is the first time we've done something where like, I was really here for this moment. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, so this movie has a special place for me. Um, so it was either end of 94 beginning of 95 i'm not exactly sure when i saw it um the only thing i knew about it is i think i saw john travolta on either letterman or conan o'brien and they were like kind of reenacting the royale with cheese scene and i was like oh this is interesting i kind of want to see this movie like that's that's a weird piece to know about this movie to be like oh that's what i want to go see um i saw it at the the you know the mall in my hometown and i think the last two movies i saw there just to put it in context and put me in context as a movie viewer the last two movies i saw in that theater uh before seeing this and these are movies that i loved were uh forest gump which came out that mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. and dumb and dumber which came out that year and, <laughs> and i was like well these were both great movie experiences so that was me walking into this theater um, and honestly, like, I felt like the scales fell off my eyes and I was like, oh, I didn't I mean, to use your words. Like, I didn't know you could do this. I felt like I was looking at something completely new. It's probably the first time that I thought about a movie as art <laughs> that I was like, oh, this is this is more. This is not this is extremely entertaining, but it's not mm-hmm. here merely to entertain me. Mm-hmm. I'm experiencing um, something else. And I will say when I got to, I remember sitting in the theater when they circle back to the coffee shop and you have this revelation that, oh, this is the same scene as the opening. <laughs> and I had this distinct memory because we're about two hours and 10 minutes into the movie when you mm-hmm. reconnect with Tim Roth and Amanda Plummer. And I thought to myself, I I had this moment of panic that the movie was going to end. <laughs> I was like, I just, can we just stay here? And what's funny is, I, I mean, I've seen this movie I was trying to think probably 25 times. Like this is a movie I've gone back to again and again and again. And I was watching it yesterday and we hit the coffee shop and I had this moment of panic of, Oh no, the movie's going to end. It's like that, that, that feeling comes back to me every time. Um, The best way I can describe my relationship to this is like, this is my breathless or this is my 2001, a space odyssey, two movies mm-hmm. I love that I was not alive for, or to switch medium. This is my like, Sergeant Peppers like this is the thing which activated me in a particular kind of way for taking in um for taking in something like this and 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 at once I watched it I could not stop thinking about it um and and I, so and the last thing I'll say about about that initial experience is like I think this is the feeling I chase every time I go to the movies every time I watch start press play on a movie that I haven't seen before I have mm-hmm. this hope that 
I am going to experience this again. I have experienced that feeling again. I mean, so it sounds weird and maybe fitting for this movie that like I compare it to like a drug almost. It's like this was the initial hit of something that it's like every time it's like, I can I feel like that again when I watch a movie? No, I, I'm, I'm going to make a comment, and I've, I've made this before in other contexts on the podcast, um, Sam, and that is that in some respects, I think this is a movie that follows the principle of um, T.S. Eliot's approach to canonicity. Because, you know, you were talking, we both talked about all the ways in which this movie was, you know, fresh and revelatory and revolutionary and seminal and all that stuff. But the fact is, Tarantino is well known. Uh, and you see it all over this film. He's well known for the encyclopedic knowledge that he has of film, both kind of art films. He's a lover of Godard, for example, and all kinds of B-movies. And you see posters for B-movies. In this film, you see references to B-movies. So what, what's interesting, and, and, and for those who may not know what T.S. Eliot, Eliot says, Eliot says that a new work fits into the canon, but it's always in reference to the older works. Um, in that sense, Eliot was both conservative and and kind of uh, uh, and kind of revolutionary. So Tarantino does something. This is also Shakespearean. Tarantino does something unique and new, but he uses he draws on. He doesn't he doesn't just create it out of the ether. Uh, it's it's kind of impossible for him to be on the cutting edge without. <laughs> to use another phrase from from uh, from Western culture, without standing on the shoulders of giants, mm -hmm. um, and and he's not in any way um, he's not trying to hide that. I mean, that's that's the other thing. I mean, he puts it right out there for you. So, you know, for example, you have you have John Travolta twice on the toilet reading Modesty Blaze which is a um, it's a spy fiction novel from the 60s. There was a film made of it uh, by directed by Joseph Losey. And there was talk for many years of uh, Tarantino himself doing an adaptation of Modesty Blades. So so he's putting it right out there. He's saying this is this is where I come from. But because I come from there, I'm going to take you in a in a in a different in a different direction. Uh, well, what's interesting, what's interesting about that, too, is <clears throat> so if, if you're watching this movie, aware of those things you're seeing it all over the place if you're watching it like i was the first time unaware of anything it it feels it feels fresh and new and it doesn't assume you're going to know those things but it does introduce you to those things so for mm -hmm. example uh modesty blaze like when you brought that up like i knew i knew what that i've never read it but i knew what that was because it's so clearly visible twice in the movie that i remember a while ago going back and saying i have to figure out what book he's reading that must mean something that mm -hmm. must tell me something or like you said posters on the wall or tv shows that they reference mm -hmm. things like mm -hmm. that i mean i was thinking about something we said uh with when we were talking about jaws and this is interesting because jaws was was spielberg's second movie and his first really big movie and this is tarantino's second movie and his first really big movie that that sort of you know is on a bigger scale is like i feel like <clears throat> there's a degree to which this tarantino sort of poured everything into this like it's like if i only get to make one thing i'm putting it i'm not leaving anything in the tank what's crazy is he goes on to then have this career where i continue to be sort of blown away by by his movies where i actually feel like the last movie he made is in some ways like I, I struggle with, which is, which is like my favorite Tarantino movie. I particularly love once upon a time in Hollywood, mm -hmm. which, you know, I would think like, well, his ninth movie can't be as, as like exhilarating to me as this, but it kind of is in a very different way. So um, I, I feel like he emptied himself into this movie, but that it's a, the reservoir has a lot more to it, even though I feel like he didn't leave anything un, mm -hmm. unused if that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, I should also just mention as an aside that uh, Jaws is one of his favorite films. It's in his uh, top 12. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so do you remember the discourse around this movie in 94 when this came out? Yeah, and I, I, and, and, and I yeah, and I'm glad you, you bring that up, Sam, because I, I think one of the elephants in the room about this film and probably about a lot of um, Tarantino dialogue is not only... Um, the fact that it's you know obscenity laced, um, but also the fact that he uh, has a liberal use of the N word. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and you really can't grapple with Tarantino without kind of bringing that up. But I will say that 30 years ago, that was not quite the conversation it is today. I think that conversation has changed a lot. Um, it made it, it's become a more difficult conversation for sure. Um, but I would say that even in 94, that was, that was part of the issue. But at the same time, you have the Academy giving him the Oscar for best writing. So in a way, the Academy has kind of navigated that. You also have the other thing I think surrounded this film, though, and this is maybe paradoxical, having just said about the writing, is this is where he got this reputation for, you know, his films are violent soaked. And I felt like that was that's such a misreading of this film. There's there's relatively little violence in this film. And the violence there is, is something that even I, whom I'm kind of squeamish about violence, I didn't have any trouble watching it. The most difficult moment for me in the film is the needle. Um, I, I'm okay, I'm okay with baseball bats and samurai swords, uh, but the the needle was the hard one for me. So, I, so I think in a way there was kind of like contradictory, you know, dialogue around it. Like on the one hand, oh, so you can write this really smart stuff, but is it okay to say those words? And wow, look at all the violence, but not really. Yeah, I feel like like even in the moment, uh, I know especially like Spike Lee, another director I yeah. loved in 94 was, was sort of on Tarantino about this from the beginning. And, and there's definitely moments that um, I look at now and think, Oh yeah, we feel differently about that now than we do. Um, uh, you know, than than we, than we did then. And then other moments where it's like, Oh, I actually even remember in the moment feeling like, Whoa, this is, both can somebody say that and particularly can tarantino say that like yeah and, and that's always the issue right i mean tarantino who is not a particularly conciliatory person um you know his argument for writing the way he writes kind of boils down to his sense of what is true to the characters mm-hmm. um you know and he's a, and and he actually talks about you know his uh film after this jackie brown you know, which is a homage to black exploitation films. And, you know, in, in the argument over whether or not he can write certain words, you know, or say have characters say certain words, his claim has always been, but that's the way these characters talk. So in that, you know, I'm glad you mentioned Spike Lee. He and Spike Lee have a particularly sharp disagreement. I also saw Lee Daniels on a talk show uh, disagreeing with Tarantino saying, you know, as a white man, he can't use, the, he can't use those words. On the other hand, you have people like Samuel L. Jackson uh, saying those words, uh, or, you know, Django Unchained would be another example where you have black actors saying those words because they feel like those are the right words for those characters to say. Um, but I think that's ultimately, that's, that's ultimately what the debate is about. And that is about, can a per- can a white person actually, use those words or even have somebody else use that particular word yeah it's interesting um thinking about the discourse around this so i went back and read a bunch of contemporary reviews of this because i was kind of curious um because i will say this was like i said when i saw this this was a revelation to me but in my you know i was a senior in high school in my small catholic school i was a little reticent to tell people you know what my favorite movie is is pulp fiction because i was like i don't really know how so you know how people would feel about that or um, you know, mm. um, but so when I was reading things like it was interesting. So things you mentioned, like violence, vulgarity, oddly, sex gets brought up a lot, which I mean, yeah. this has one particularly um, yeah. memorable scene. But other than that, like there's that's not really no. something even in this movie. Um, and then and then just a lot of people writing about sort of the the nihilism of this movie. No, <laughs> even even in, even in reviews that are celebrating the movie. Huh. It's I mean, it, it's so weird because to me, from the moment I saw this and this uh, I'm going to apologize up front when I was writing notes for this, I ended up basically just writing an essay about what I think about this movie. Like this is a <laughs> deeply spiritual movie to me and always has been from, yeah. from the very beginning. And it's, it's grown as I've thought more about it. Um, so I just find that very strange is like all of the, I mean, a lot of those criticisms were like, well, yes, that's true, but that's not really, but, but then the, so many people are, are sort of celebrating the style and saying, well, it may not have subs. And I actually listened to something from 2019 of people that I really love that were talking, who love Tarantino. We're talking about his career and they were talking about his early career as this great stylistic stuff and this great sort of pulling together, like you said, of all these influences, but there's, he's really not trying to say anything, but later on he is. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This movie 
definitely has uh, has a lot to say, um, which I just found very strange. You know, I, it was hard to find people at the time talking about what this movie's about. Yeah, it it is strange because you know one of the things you have to talk about with this film, one of the ways in which Tarantino has had an influence, uh, is is the structure of the film. And so you know, so you ask yourself, why does it start and end with the diner, right? Because I don't know how you feel about this, uh, Sam, but I, I think if you talk about this as a spiritual film, it's a hope-filled film. The structure emphasizes the film is Jules' experience, and this film is about ultimately it's about it's about the redemption of Jules, and. There's a reason why in the middle of the film, Vincent is alone in the attack on Butch because Jules is now out of the picture. And so, I mean, to me, that's that's just so it's so obvious, right? He gets to say his Ezekiel passage three times and, and he comes to grips with what that really means. And he has that long conversation with Pumpkin saying exactly what he's trying, what he's trying to do. Um, I mean, I don't know how much more overt uh tarantino could be about a a redemptive message right no i mean it, it's textual like that's just it is like i i was thinking about this and I, and every time i watch it i think okay is this just me reading into it but then you get to the end and it ends with him making the case to say this is what this is what has happened and mm-hmm. here's my reaction to it and he even addresses uh, what i love is he in that final scene he even addresses the things that you would like if you were debating with let's say Jules about this or Tarantino about is this or debating with me I could use Jules's dialogue to explain it if you say like mm-hmm. well why would why would a story about these people these types of people like be about the spiritual redemption and he's and Jules says you don't judge this based on merit right you don't judge the things that are happening like the miracle that he you know experiences and, and he says they come in all shapes and sizes right like those are the those two things that he says tell you like okay you can argue against this but the text is telling us Jules is in a kind of he even says I'm in a transition period in my life he said normally normally you'd be dead by now but you caught me in a transition period in my life um so I'm gonna make a uh uh comparison here to uh, to a name you've already dropped in this episode I think of this movie um as Similar to me of how I think about T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. Mm-hmm. Now, if you think about Eliot's Eliot's career, right, that is a The Wasteland is is at a trans in the middle of a transition point, maybe early in a transition point in Eliot's career. Yeah. Now, because Eliot goes on to have this, you know, real kind of spiritual awakening and conversion, you can read The Wasteland and say, "Oh, yes, this is a step on this." Mm-hmm. Um, but to me, it's a very, I mean, they're very similar things. Mm-hmm. I feel like Jules and the voice of the wasteland end this movie at a similar moment where they've experienced, you know, what Jules calls the the touch of God. And he says, like, I can't be the same. I've experienced this thing, which broke the reality of the world that I was living in. Just like in the wasteland, the, the coming of the rain creates this thing that the the narrator has to wrestle with, or the, the, the poet has to wrestle with. And I, I, to me, those are, those are very similar texts, and I think I feel I, I resonate with them in a in a similar way. You know, it's significant to me, Sam. It's coincidental, but significant that we're recording this episode on the second day of Lent. Uh, yesterday was Ash Wednesday, and of course, this is the season where we do think about, about repentance and, and turning, uh, and that's how Eliot begins as Ash Wednesday poem because mm-hmm. I do not hope to turn. So, to me, to to kind of go back to this idea of Jules, Jules versus Vincent. There, there, there's a there's a place in uh, when they're in Jimmy's house, and I think it's when Vincent is arguing with uh, with the wolf, and he says something about um, apolo- about apologizing, and Vincent says sort of you know once a man says he is sorry, he is forgiven, mm-hmm. and 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 I think that Tarantino is pointing out the difference between Vincent saying oh I'm sorry because he really doesn't mean that Vincent Vincent is not a person who who humbles himself, who is willing to reassess himself. And, and, and the other thing you get is kind of the classical story, the classical situation where you have two people having the same experience 
one of whom sees it as deeply spiritual and the other who has what you might call a materialistic explanation, right? So Jules looks at those bullet <laughs> I just love that shot, right? They're standing there and all these bullet holes are behind them. It seems impossible. And Jules says, you know, this is an act of God. And Vincent's like, well, the guy just missed. So I, so I think the other thing that Tarantino is doing is he's showing this, that some people will go, given the opportunity, given certain events, some people will go one way and some people will go, will go the other, which just kind of encapsulates the whole, the whole psychology of whether people turn or don't turn to some kind of higher hope. Absolutely. And what's interesting about that is, so I, I've thought about this movie differently than I ever have this week. I think because I was preparing for this, um, one of the things you mentioned is something I had never oddly never thought about, which is, I know this movie is told out of order, but it never, I never stopped to think why I, I always, I mean, I, I did kind of, but not, not in like a, a even grander structural sense, you know, in part, I was just like, well, this is a cool way to tell this story and you get to end with this particular scene, which is this powerful thing. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to think if you told this same story chronologically, you know, and there are sites that will break down. Here's how to watch it chronologically. Yeah. I would love to see a cut of it because I think that would be, it would not be Pulp Fiction, but it would be interesting to see, but you end in such a weird place. And, and Jules's conversation with, in the, in the, um with Vincent in the diner comes way too early in the movie um, because what, well, because I think that that conversation is really a reflection on, not just the miracle that happens in that apartment, but as I think about the movie, it there really is, um, there really is three at least three miracles that happen. I'm using that word miracle loosely, and we can determine how we feel. But that's the movie that's asking you to think about these things. I mean, it, it's hard to not think about the fact that this movie has a resurrection in it i mean mia yes. wallace is dead mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. so so vincent not only experiences one mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. presumably that same week is there for a resurrection yes. and 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 still he like he refuses to he refuses to accept that and what's interesting mm-hmm. to me is Jules' plan when he experiences this this miracle is he's going to walk the earth and you know find get into adventures and find out where God wants him. Right? Presumably, Vincent is not afraid to talk about the miracle. Now, right. or excuse me, um, Jules is not afraid to talk about the miracle. Vincent does not want to talk about it. <laughs> if you think about the end of the the Mia Wallace um, Vincent story, it ends by them basically saying, "Let's never tell anyone about what happened." <laughs> yes, you know, like like. Okay, so so we have that that story is basically, you know, has this this miracle at its core. Now we think about the gold watch story. Where's the miracle in the gold watch story? When they are okay, so so this is basically a story about these, you know, this double cross, this manhunt, right? right? right. They end up literally in hell. They're in a base. I mean, like, like, right, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you ever think about how Butch gets like how the the bonds that are tying Butch's hands like they just sort of fall away. Like he's struggling yeah, with them. Yeah, they yeah. just sort of fall away. And, and even the way he films that, right. He like, I don't know if he slows it down. There's something about when yeah. that happens, that feels unreal. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And then he has, so he is freed. Like this is another, I mean, again, I don't want to like over Christianize this, but like that is a freedom from bondage is a, is a kind of, you know, is, is a, especially the bondage of hell. If you want to think about it that way. Right. And then he he has this chance to leave, and he so he his response to that miracle is to or whatever we want to call it is to say, "I'm actually going to go save this other guy too." Who, yeah, yeah, we were trying to kill each other. He wants to kill me, and I was about to kill him. And then he goes through this great progression of like which weapon he's going to use. And there is something I think significant about the samurai sword. As I mean, I think about like that speaks to me of like this sort of code of honor and things like this, you know, that there's, there's, there's not a mistake that he doesn't go with a, with a baseball bat, but goes with the samurai sword. Well, it looks forward to kill bill as well. Mm-hmm. I, I, Absolutely. To, to me. Yeah. Right. Well, okay. So let me pick up on a couple of things there, Sam. First of all, I, w- I want to get back to Vincent. And that is that um, when he and Jules are talking about what Jules is going to do in the diner, Jules is talking about, you know, kind of, 
having a new mission, walking the earth like Cain in Kung Fu, right? Mm -hmm. And what does Vincent say? He says, oh, so you want to be a bum. So, right. So, so, I mean, and you could say, you know, from Vincent's point of view, St. Francis of Assisi was a bum. That's, you know, so, so that's his, that's his perspective on that. And the other thing you could point out about the diner scene paralleling what happens with Butch in, 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 uh, in, in the, in the store is, you know, Jules is also trying to save the life of pumpkin and honey bunny. Um, So you get this, you get the same impulse. Now I want to say, maybe you were going here, but I'm going to get there first. If you do watch the film in chronological order, the last thing is Butch and Fabian rolling, uh, riding off on a motorcycle. I'm sorry, chopper, a chopper. <laughs> on a chopper named Grace. Mm-hmm. So Tarantino gets to have his cake and eat it too. He gets to have two spiritual endings to, to the film. I, I, I think that's pretty important. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, 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 and what, so, so what I love about it. So, and this is getting back to the structure because, because like I knew all that stuff, like I, or, some of it I had sort of thought through. I thought a lot, I thought about the other miracles a lot more this time around. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about the structure, so the first scene is uh, pumpkin and honey bunny. Um, and it's like a, it's like he's giving us a thesis statement for this movie, but mm-hmm. we have to wonder is the, is that thesis statement given, given to us by an unreliable narrator? Because most of the reviews I read are about that thesis statement, which is mm-hmm. life is this like, casual mundane thing punctuated by violence which lots of people like to write about that with this movie and that is this movie is if you want it to be about that it that Mm -hmm. is definitely the fun he's having right that that because then then when we cut away after after the the we get the credits the song changes we're with vincent and and jules in the car again they're having conversations about hamburgers and foot massages and tv pilots and then Jules says, my, one of my favorite lines is when they're standing at the door, he says, let's get into character, into character yes. right? And then they go in and and now they're doing their job and it's this very violent thing. So it's about like, it's about how this is, I mean, in one way, is you, like empathy is a weird word to use, but it's sort of like other things where it's like, I want to show you the human side of these people or the other side of these people. But, it, you know, so is this movie about how life is really just casual mundane conversation punctuated by violence and it feels like okay that's what it's about but then at the end you get another thesis statement saying actually this is what this was about now go back and think about all the things that happened and if you play it in order you don't get that that um sort of double thesis uh so so that really struck me as like i'm I'm actually like i said i'd love to see it chronologically just because i would wonder what gets lost? Because I, I think there is, I think it's very intricate the way it's put together to circle back to that moment. And I think it's significant that it is Jules who says, let's get into character. Mm-hmm. I, I think that makes it easier for Jules at the end to think this was a role I was playing and I'm going to step away from it into a different role or, or this is a role I was playing until I figured out who I really am. Whereas I think for, for Vincent, that's, that's his, that's his identity. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't think of himself as anything but the the hitman. Yeah, and if we go back to the gold watch story, mm. another part of the end of that story is because because there's a way to think about all three of these stories have moments where people say, "What do we do now?" Yeah, because there is that. I mean, Butch and and uh, Marcellus have that moment after they're both freed, where Butch is like, "Okay." like what now and and marcellus tells him you know he's lost his la privileges but that that there's that there is no you and i anymore mm-hmm. but there also it also is like i am now lifting anything between us is has melted away so there so that's a different response than vincent and mia's saying let's never talk about this <laughs> you know that, that there is this sense of like like we are now clean you know, mm-hmm. like, like, and, and, and that's where the, you know, the grace part, uh, the grace part comes into this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Other things with this movie. I mean, like, like th- that, that I think about um, and especially, you know, on this watch uh, the, the dialogue jumps out to me when I think of Tarantino movies, the ones that I love are the talkiest. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's why, like I was talking to my mom about once upon a time in Hollywood and she said, Oh, I think I want to see that. And I, I don't know that she's seen Tarantino movies before. And I said, actually, I think you'd be okay with this. I just want you to know that, that he's usually like has this sort of 
you know, violent, if I'm thinking about Inglorious Bastards or things like this, like there's some rough violent scenes. And I said, this one doesn't have those until it does at the very end. Mm -hmm. So I want you to know what you're getting into, but I think you'll like, like, I, that's a very talky movie. I like mm -hmm. that. I love um, the hateful eight is a very talky mm -hmm. movie. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's why I, I think I like Hill Bill a little bit less because he's, he's into some things that that I actually I should revisit those because the last time I watched them I liked them a lot more but I like the talky elements of his movie and this movie seems very much so that yeah I think it's been a while since I've seen them and I think uh, Kill Bill Volume 2 has is a little talkier than Kill Bill Volume 1 as, as I recall it, 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 and, it, and it's not only the fact that there's great talk there's two things I want to say about it one is that and several critics have noticed this that the conversations often begin, they're kind of, um, <laughs> what do you want to say? They're kind of at right angles to the actual dramatic situation, mm -hmm. right? I mean, so obviously, you know, you've already talked about the Royale with cheese and all that talk, and then they go in and do their job. But even when Butch comes back to the hotel and he and Fabian aren't really talking about anything relating to what he's just gone through, right? And you get into the conversation about how she wants to have a pot belly. And it's just, it. There, there's something so, um, it, it, it's, it, it reminds you that these are people, these are just people who are just talking about stuff and it doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily have to, it doesn't necessarily have to advance the plot. I think, I think Ebert, Ebert's original review does a really good job of talking about it. He said, and this is a guy who watched a lot of movies over the course of his life. He said that he, he never really thought about how differently dialogue could function in a film because of the way that Tarantino does it. He says, you know, so much dialogue is about directly advancing the plot or explicating the characters. And it's like Tarantino isn't afraid to say, I'm just going to have these people talk about what's on their mind. And somehow you're going to end up seeing how that's related to the action, but it's not this simple one-to-one -one correspondence. So that's one thing I love because once the conversation starts, you're like, you know, where is it going to go? And part of it is poetic. You know, one of the, one of the things that characterizes poetry as, as a, uh, as a genre is it is not only what it is saying, but how it is said. Mm -hmm. And so to me, one of the great pleasures of a Tarantino dialogue is just, I mean, that conversation in Jackrabbit Slims, um, you know, identifying all the various characters and talking about how Buddy Holly isn't a very good waiter and uh, what does a $5 milkshake taste like? I mean, you just, you just kind of, I don't know, I just, you just kind of luxuriate in, in, in that, in that conversation. And then the other thing I'll say about, about it is there's always, to me, there's always one or two high points there's like one or two conversations that really stand out and tarantino is not afraid to to do that and in the, in particular the two that i would point to there's a lot in this film but i would point to the way that he contrasts the conversation that um the young butch has with with uh, captain coons about mm -hmm. the watch and the earlier conversation and, and the conversation we see between butch and um marcellus and it's interesting how they're they're shot from different points of view. Um, you know, so sometimes you're looking into Butch's face, sometimes you're looking into Captain Coons's face, but but they are both kind of key moments in that character's arc. So at the same time, they are related to the plot. So, I mean, to me, I could just listen to Christopher Walken talk forever about about that watch. It's just the sheer pleasure of the performance that you that you just uh, that that's to me what Tarantino gives you. There also is a, is a specificity to the language that he's not afraid of. I mean the, mm -hmm. the 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 classic joke about movies is if you watch just about any movie if a character goes into a bar they order a beer which mm. you can't actually or like like if you went into a bar and said give me a beer they would yeah, look at you and say well what do you want like that's not a that's not a thing you know like like everything whether it's visually or the way people talk he is he's not afraid to just throw in these references now what's interesting is um i remember at the time having conversations or debates with people about how we talked about tarantino dialogue which is either is this does he like showing us the way people really talk which is kind of like like what you're mm -hmm. saying like like there's something real about these conversations but there's also something aspirational about them because mm -hmm. nobody actually sounds like this mm -hmm. um but it's also not um it's also not like you said uh like a 
a puzzle box where everything needs to be said because it needs to show up later. And sometimes what's great is sometimes it does. Like I love that the, the Royale with cheese has a, a little payoff later on when, when they're talking, when they're talking about the big kahuna burger and he uses that piece of knowledge. Like, so there is some of these things will like come back in weird ways or the pilot, right? Like, like mm-hmm. that, you know, that's mentioned so offhandedly, but then later on it comes up two more times in that next story. So um, you know, people are are also collecting information, but it's not plot information. It's kind of character information or just things like this. But then other things get mentioned offhandedly, and sometimes it's a reference I know, and sometimes it's a reference where it's like I I don't I don't know what that thing is. Um, but but there is something about that. Now, what I found interesting, and this is the um my big revelation this time around, which is not a it's for most people probably not a revelation, but for me it was like I have never in my life thought of john travolta as a good actor i mean i think about him as like uh you know he's he's good in greece because it's a musical it's what it is right but like i think about other things i've seen him in pre and post this and it's like i'm not particularly impressed and i I, and i knew he was nominated for best actor for this and i've i've always thought of like sam jackson to me this is like you said this is jules is the core to this story is the key to this story and sam jackson is an absolute force of nature in this Mm -hmm. movie in a way that I've seldom seen on a screen. And I always kind of just like, wow, I can't believe they gave Travolta an Oscar nomination for this. Like he's, I mean, I realize it's like his comeback, but but when you watch that Jackrabbit Slim's conversation and I would, if I would go back and just watch that, everybody else in this movie sounds like they're just doing Tarantino dialogue, which I love, but it doesn't feel naturalistic Mm -hmm. in that conversation. He is so natural saying these things and the way he delivers it, the way he like ponders over the things he's saying or stumbles over the things he's saying, or it, if it, he actually makes it sound like these are things he's thinking of in the moment. And I just, the first time in my life where I was like, maybe he's great. Maybe this is the thing, or at least in this moment, he is actually transcendently great at delivering this conversation. I was so blown away when I watched it a second time. I was just like, there, nobody else is doing this. I mean, Uma Thurman sounds like she's doing Tarantino dialogue back to him. And he sounds like he's a human being who happens to like have the brain of Tarantino delivering it back. And it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, there's kind of a spectrum. And uh, I mean, I think that there's, there's a spectrum of different, what you might call, you know, idiolects, the way people write dialogue. And I think what you're always going for is you're going for a kind of, you know, you use the word naturalistic, Sam, you know, you're going for something that it has verisimilitude. It, it, It sounds plausible that people could talk this way, but none of us actually do because we don't have the time to uh, pick our words and, uh, and and write out our conversation and kind of edit it. But the key is to make it sound like somebody would actually talk this way. You know, to me, the extreme version of this would be something like a David Mamet film. I mean, Ma- Mamet talk is, is so artificial that it, it's almost as though he's asking you to really pay attention to the fact that this is a contrived, contrived dialogue. I think Tarantino dials it back a little bit, a little bit from that. But to me, that's the other thing that is part of the genius of his dialogue, which I was alluding to earlier, which is that people could speak so profanely and yet so lyrically at the mm-hmm. at the same time. That yes, they're using a lot of swear words, but what they're saying is actually really insightful and and interesting. And you can't and you can't just take out the profanity. You can't just say, well, why, why can't you say that without this word or that word? Well, because those words are kind of essential to who the character is and that character's perspective on the world. And so the idea is that rough-spoken people or people who live what you might call a low life are still capable of having what you might call higher, th- higher thoughts or interesting thoughts. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's sort of the democracy of, of Tarantino's world. Absolutely. Absolutely. Another interesting thing about this movie um, that, again, I've known, but it struck me this time is when you think about this, if you've never seen this movie and for some reason you're listening to us talk about it, you would be shocked to hear that most of this movie takes place before 10 in the morning. Mm hmm. It's like that. It's so strange, you know, that like this feels like the stuff that happens, you know, in the dark of night and there are night scenes in it, but the fact that that the whole Jules Vincent story 
is done by 10 a.m. and they're eating breakfast. You know, at yeah. the end of it, they're they're going out for breakfast. Um, and then the um, you know, the whole butch story, like that, they have an 11 a.m. train. Like, like this is all happening in the morning, which mm-hmm. which I don't know what to make of that, but that that also just changes the feel of it because it um I have a an aunt who lives in Los Angeles. So I've been out to visit her a number of times, and it this also just feels like morning in the in the valley a little bit too. Like I feel like I, like that is captured really well. And I think, I think, you know, um, <clears throat> morning sort of touches on maybe morning, I think of as a more mundane time, <laughs> you know, like, like the, the business of gangsters isn't being done in the morning, but then this is showing you like, Oh, maybe they knock on your door at uh, eight twenty five and you have a conversation, you know, about, uh, about hamburgers and, <laughs> you know, briefcases. So yeah, and what's what's Winston Wolf doing all dressed up at a party at nine in the morning or whatever it is? It's like, has it been going on all night? I mean, it's like, you're right. It, it, it takes place in the morning, but it's also, you're, you're, you're also kind of um, disoriented in a sense. Mm-hmm. So you really don't quite know exactly what time, what time it is. Yeah. Um, the other thing in terms of real life that's interesting about this, and this is a weird motif throughout this movie is, I mean, one of the jokes about a lot of like action movie things is like, when do people stop to go to the bathroom? And like, there's a yeah, lot of people right. going to the bathroom in this movie. And sometimes <laughs> it is plot significant. Like they're, they go to the bathroom. So they miss something that happens and then, or then, then when they come back, something happens. Sometimes it's as mundane as your food shows up. Sometimes it's, you know, somebody uh, overdoses because they thought heroin was cocaine. And it's like, like anything can, but, but it is interesting. Cause like almost every character at some point, goes to the bat. I mean, and then, and that's where you get the, the death of Vincent is him just, you know, like if you're on a stakeout, eventually you're going to have to go to the bathroom and Butch happens to come at that moment. And, you know, and his literally catches him with his pants down. Yeah. And it's, and, 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 you know, not to get into numerology, but it's the third time, right. He goes, mm-hmm. it's a, uh, you know, the, the uh let's see with the first the first time it would be the diner and um second time would be Mia's. And then the third time is, is, is Butch's. So, yeah. 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 Um, Another thing I love, I'm just sort of going through notes now here. Another thing I love about this movie is um, we talked about its opening is, is, you know, at the the coffee shop, but actually it's opening, I think is a, a very funny joke. I assume it's a joke. The definition of pulp. Yes. Cause it it opens like the way the worst speech you could write would be, which is Webster's dictionary defines pulp (laughs) as, and uh, you know, and I think it's like, it just strikes every time I see that it strikes me as, such a funny way to start this movie because it's you know I mean, you could it, it definitely ties to this but it's really unnecessary and it's and it makes me laugh every time i see it yeah well it's like it's like, it's like tarantino is kind of saying okay so that you've got your you've got your high culture definition of low culture mm-hmm. so let, that's what you think pulp fiction is let me show you what pulp fiction actually is so yes. I, yeah, yeah i think i think that's what he's doing there so I have a bunch of little notes here. Do you have other things you want to talk about with this movie? Um, I, I just in general, I'm going to say that I think that we have underemphasized the degree to which this film is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, there are so many there are so many scenes that are that are. I mean, sometimes they're they're laugh out loud funny, and I, I don't. I'm just going to pick one because I just love this one. When when Vincent and Jules are cleaning up at Jimmy's. And they argue over him making the towel bloody. And Vincent says, if he had lava, I'd have done a better job. <laughs> yeah. As a kid, I remember my mom buying lava. I remember using lava soap. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing I want to point out is, um, you know, I mentioned earlier that uh, Tarantino has a great high regard for Godard. Um, and you see that in several ways in, the, in this film. You know, for example, Mia... Uh, is made to look like Anna Karina with that with that black wig. Um, Tarantino's production company is called Band of Outsiders, which is based on the title of uh, Godard's '64 film. And then the the shooting of of characters from the from the back, especially most notably um, Marcellus, and I have no idea why he has that bandaid on his neck. By the way, um, that's taken right out of uh, My Life to Live from from Godard. Uh, the other thing I love, it was a moment I had forgotten about, but when um, uh, two more two more camera things, 
Um, when Butch is in the cab and you have that very obvious 1940s mm-hmm. rejection, I just love that. And then, and then, what, 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 can I say something about that? What makes that great is that we've already seen him use cameras in real cars. So it's oh, yeah, not right, like, right, right. it's not like this movie does this. It's like this scene does this. Yeah, that's all right. He's, I, I want, I want to take you back to the 1940s very deliberately. And then when uh, when when Butch is in the telephone booth, you get that classic 360 spin, which is kind of you know Hitchcockian. Um, oh, one more! I love when Jules and uh, Vincent open the trunk, and you get the view from inside the trunk. Mm-hmm. And and then you and then you've got combinations. Sometimes you have handheld. Uh, you know, sometimes you have tracking shots. I mean, you, we could just talk about all of the various ways in which he uses various film techniques throughout. So. Right. And that and that's where I feel the Jaws comparison of like I'm throwing every shot I know into this. Like like mm-hmm. we're gonna do we're gonna do all of this because yeah, because because maybe I'll never make it, maybe I'll never get to make another one. So I'm gonna put everything I know into into this. Um another thing about this movie, uh this is um what this is the movie that taught me what a MacGuffin is. I mean mm. the, the the briefcase is this deeply important thing that's never explained or we assume it's deeply important I, and i love every reaction to it like especially the tim roth one like mm-hmm. when he looks at it and he just yeah. says it's beautiful and mm-hmm. and when vincent opens it in the in the apartment like he's transfixed and it's yeah. just like that and i did like uh and so this leads this is a very mid-90s thing but the first ever email forward i received was in my freshman year of college from a friend of mine, and it was about explaining the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. <laughs> you know, and it's and it, it's 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 uh you know that and that explanation was all about how it was another spiritual explanation, how like that contained Marcellus Wallace's soul, and this is all about <laughs> them. You know, he had sold his soul, and they were you know, and then like they made this case, whatever. But um, but like that, it, it that is also just a very a very nineties thing to mm-hmm. to you know to get an email forward saying I'm going to explain explain this movie to you. Um, another thing that I thought was interesting is the one of the criticisms of this movie was, uh, and this comes from everyone from Bob Dole to other people about like how this movie celebrates drug use. Ugh. Now, I will say this movie depicts drug use. Yes. This movie is one of the greatest anti-drug PSAs I've ever seen. <laughs> um, after after the whole Mia Wallace story makes me, you know, it's like I never I just why even bother? Like, like it's it's terrifying. And then mm-hmm. even the even the like when you see uh, Vincent, you know, after he after he shoots up, it's like Vincent is a is a guy who at certain moments has a you know an an element of cool to him but he's so uncool at that moment like he's so kind of dazed out walking through the apartment when he first shows there and and you know Mia is the same way like like there there's moments where it's like you're supposed to read her as cool but she actually like when she's dancing to the uh girl you'll be a woman soon if you actually pay attention and I had headphones on so I could hear her better like she is she's very dorky in that moment. And she's like singing and doesn't know the words to the song. And it's, it's just like, um, yeah, like all of this makes me feel like this is a great, this is a great like uh, explanation for why you shouldn't do drugs. I don't think this <laughs> celebrates that in the least. Yeah. Oh, um, last thing, this comes out in 1994, uh, which is one of the, the big kind of great Oscar years. I want a great, one of the great movie years um, of the late 20th century. So you get uh, you get Pulp Fiction, you get Shawshank Redemption. Um, Forrest Gump ends up winning the Oscar that year. I, this this is maybe the first Oscar race I was invested in too. I think mm-hmm. largely because of this movie, um, and it's such so that it becomes such a generational shift. I mean, you couldn't get a more late celebratory baby boomer movie than um, than Forrest Gump, and you and and in some ways, Pulp Fiction is the ultimate Gen X movie. In, in the ways it's celebrating elements of Gen X culture and the, the ways that it spawns, you know, far too many Tarantino wannabes throughout. The, I mean, it, it, this movie kind of kind of breaks movie culture a little bit, too. Like there's too much of the late 90s are people trying to make their version of this movie, I feel like. Yeah, that was sort of what I wanted to say as a last comment, Sam, and that is that the movie has certainly has and, and the movie's not responsible for this uh people in hollywood are the movie definitely has a mixed uh, uh pedigree as a, as an inspiration i would say that you know some of the better movies that it's inspired in terms of um playing with chronology 
would be things like the usual suspects and memento mm-hmm. um you know those are both both really fine movies uh, and maybe they would have happened without pulp fiction but i think much more of the of its um of its legacy is things like really inferior films not not always bad but two days in the valley or go which are kind of mm-hmm. okay lock stock and two smoking barrels which i loathe um things to do in denver when you're dead which i haven't seen but isn't supposed to be very good um I, and then the, kind of in the middle you have the fact that and here's another john travolta film that i liked at the time uh hollywood went out and found more kind of hard-boiled more leonard stuff like get shorty or out of mm-hmm. sight and those are decent films they're decent films so i i would say it's kind of a mixed bag but probably the best Tarantino legacy is more Tarantino films. Exactly. And what's interesting is he follows this up with Jackie Brown, which yeah. when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I don't like this because it's mm-hmm. not Pulp mm-hmm. Fiction. And I have since revisited that uh, a couple of times and realized this is actually a great film. It's just it just wasn't what I wanted it to be in the same way. The Big Lebowski was not Fargo. Mm-hmm. So my first response to it was, well, I, this isn't what I wanted. And then I realized I didn't want what I wanted. What I wanted was the next thing these filmmakers wanted to give me. Um, That's so, right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think I've seen every, the only thing I haven't seen from, from Tarantino is death proof. And I should yeah, probably I, go watch it because I like, I feel like that's him leaning into the stuff that I'm less interested in, but that's unfair to him because I, I've, I've actually liked most of the other things that I've seen from him. So yeah, I had actually forgotten about the existence of Death Proof until I was reading, you know, reading through his filmography. I thought, oh right, right, it was when he was doing stuff with Robert Rodriguez, uh, the Grindhouse. Uh, exactly, Grindhouse, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, what do you have for us for next week, Barrett? Well, you you kind of led us there, uh, and I was afraid you were going to spoil my surprise, Sam, because um, uh, I, we got to explore the briefcase. So um, for next week, it's Robert Aldrich's uh, Kiss Me Deadly, which is one of my favorite films noir. It has a great Criterion uh, disc uh, edition, and uh, it is all about the briefcase. And uh, to me, that is that is definitely the way we have to go with uh, from this film. I am so excited. I only know about this movie because it's referenced when people talk about the the briefcase in trying to explain the briefcase in in pulp fiction i don't know anything else about it but i am so very very excited barrett uh this was a joy uh if you ever want me to watch a tarantino movie i'm happy to but this movie in particular is um for me is about as good as it gets and it's partially because of the age i was when i encountered it but um but i like i said i've gone back to it almost annually and i still feel I still feel moved by it. I'm, I'm, I was happy you, you, you have a similar read on it that that I do, um, because that it turns out not everybody has that read of the movie, but I think it is. It's very much in the text of it. So thank you so much for recommending this uh, and for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Kiss Me Deadly in the video store. <laughs>